Today, we're talking about bank branches. What new things are they starting to put into banks? What things did they used to put in that are no longer there? The one thing we're not talking about is the pen with the chain permanently attached to the counter. Where can I get one of those? You're listening to Where We Buy. My name is James Cook. I research retail and real estate for JLL. This is the show where we talk with retail experts and visit shopping spots across the nation. Today, we're talking with an expert in bank construction. Uh, This is Jim Ernst, who I work with at JLL. He's been working in real estate for financial institutions since 1993. So I gave Jim a call at his office in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I asked him to jump back in time. And let's start out by talking about how bank buildings used to be. So the old school thought was you want to to get your financial institution, your your banking center at the corner of Maine and Maine in every town that had a certain demographic from really a population and also, you know, a wealth potential. So, you know, you can go back and, you know, you see a lot of these uh, pieces of real estate now throughout America with the big columns, you know, they have a huge vault um, and you you see them all over America. I mean, from, you know, New York City, Chinatown um, to, you know, Omaha, Nebraska, you know, we'll have one right there, right next to a lot of times to all of the city buildings. Uh, and they are very traditional. Sometimes they look like a federal building or a, or a government building. And they were built to last. That's why they're still around. Uh, but they were expensive and there was a lot of wasted space because of, you know, a big giant vault. Uh, and then also all of the lock boxes for uh, folks to lock away personal assets that they were afraid to keep at their home. It's funny. I live in a, a small town population, uh, a little less than 10,000. And we've got, you know, a huge old old bank with the columns that you described out front. It looks like the kind of place that Bonnie and Clyde would have robbed, you know, or something like that in the movies. Uh, it It seems really out of step, though, with what people want today out of banks. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you know the biggest thing is the population and how we do business has come has become less and less uh, dependent on cash, and so just the storage of cash uh, and vaults to store that uh, are are no longer needed. So it, it, instead of a big vault, a lot of time it, it's it's a big closet that could be uh, even moved from branch to branch. You don't have to to, to build your building around a vault like. Uh, back in the days of Bonnie and Clyde, when they would maybe blow up the side of the building to get into the vault in the caper, right? Um, the other thing is the, the the personal lot boxes. That's not something that that we've been building in new facilities really for the last 10 years. It's very rare for that to happen anymore because th- that's just a dying business. People don't depend on banks to lock up wills or find jewelry and such. Now, you know, there there's devices you can buy at home to do that, or they just don't have those kind of assets anymore. You know, a lot of times a a will could be digital now, or it would be held, you know, with your estate planners uh, in in their offices. And so you don't need to have that on your, on your, or your person or in a, in a banking facility that's made the footprint of banks go much smaller. 
Uh, and, and it's more about convenience now too. You know, uh, those old banks didn't have drive ups and, you know, uh, now every bank has a drive up ATM, although the, the drive up teller line is a new trend that's, that's going away and that that's being replaced with ATMs. Um, that was still another thing, you know, a big step back in, you know, the, the sixties and the seventies to start adding, adding those in that now that's turned more into the, the ATM line. But, and then, you know, the ATM is, is a, is a big piece of design now that really that piece of equipment has changed the banking industry probably the most uh, in the last 10 years of anything uh, because that enables financial institutions not to have, you know, 10 people behind a teller line to do business that, you know, they actually try to route people to the ATMs so they don't need to have the personal contact. And, you know, with a lot of financial institutions now, they don't have teller lines at all. They just have ATMs. Quite frankly, it's, it's a lot like um, what what used to be called a remote ATM, where there was no one there to service it. It was just like a room with an ATM in it. You can see those a lot of times in shopping centers uh, around America, just for a, a quick cash dump. But now you can do all kind of transactions with a with an ATM. ATMs have been around, you know, at least since the early 80s, probably the 70s, right? So, but this is a kind of a newer change. Has it just taken a long time for bank customers to change their habits? Yeah, that's really it. It's, it's adoption. You know, it, it, it's really, it's generational. You know, uh, baby boomers like to go to the bank and touch money, you know, and, and have a transaction with a human. But, at, and, and before that, even the greatest generation, that was definitely, you know, something like my, my grandmother you know, to this day still has to go to the teller to talk to somebody. She will not use an ATM, but, but so it, it's, it's really a generational thing. You know, it, it comes down to, you know, now the younger population, we all grew up with ATMs, right? So we're used to using those and we prefer to use those because that's, it, it's faster. You don't have to stand in, in line very long and you can get your, your business done. Um, and then even, you know, the, the new banking clients, it's all about the app, which, you know, you can do all your transactions except for get money, uh, you know, with your app, but currency is going away. And most of it's, you know, you charge everything now, or you can even use like Apple Pay. You know, the more cash gets out of the system, the less you're going to need to go to that financial institution to do what everybody considers tra- traditional business. But that that's that's the big thing there is, you know, people still, when there's other transactions that you can do at a bank, like go get a mortgage uh, or get a small business loan. Or now they're also putting in financial advisors and, and banking centers. So that's what's keeping the bank uh, real estate viable in those financial institutions. They've changed the product offering substantially because of the, the, the habits in how banking's taking place with technology. So it's like everything else with automation. The stuff that gets automated is your day-to-day transactional stuff and the higher level, more advisory work is still being done by humans and branches. Correct, but with a caveat. So there are some financial institutions that now have sites that do not have any personnel in them, and what they have is rooms you can go into that has virtual employees that that tie you into a Cisco telepresence device where you're actually you're talking to someone, but they're not in person. To talk to a person, uh, sometimes you have to, you know, especially like a financial advisor. Uh, for uh, you need to make an appointment a lot of times, but you may have a quick question. Uh, these financial institutions where you kind of walk in and you and you get on the 
the telepresence machine, you can get connected directly to an associate that can answer the answer those simple questions for you and then get in and out really quickly. When when I was a kid going to bank branches with my mom, I always have the memory of the, I guess it's like a pneumatic tube that you drive up to and it would shoot over to the, to the teller, you know? Um, and then they would shoot back, uh, if they saw a kid in the car, they would put lollipops in there with the receipt and shoot them back to the kid. Are those still in existence? And is anybody still building those? There are a... a a lot of decommissioned tubes out there. I could say that for sure. Yeah, that's not something that is generally built anymore. There's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, they they don't do it. Most of it's service. Those things break down a lot. You know, with the drive-up ATM, that's kind of taken away the need for the the tube systems. So those are, those are becoming, uh, more, you know, fewer and far between, you know, the, the kind of, uh, financial institutions that still have those though. I mean, you know, you'll go to more, a lot of the regional, Financial institutions like SunTrust or BB&T, I think there's still quite a bit of that in their portfolio, um, and they and they still service with a smile exactly like you were just describing. You know, uh, the lollipop comes back for the kid if they see him in the in in the car. Quite frankly, if I'm at, if I'm visiting one of those, uh, I want the lollipop too. <laughs> Let me ask you this: I've been to some banks recently that felt more like coffee shops that had full service cafes. Are we going to see more of that? So there's the cafe approach. There's a few large financial institutions. The one that comes to mind first is Capital One. They have a huge advertising campaign with the guy walking around with his, with his iPad. And they have a great visualization of, of what those financial centers look like. That ties into their business strategy, though. That what they're, they're looking for um, a younger clientele right now. Uh, and that's, you know, they've targeted that, you know, maybe they want something like a kind of like a Starbucks, right? That's how you get to that cafe, uh, approach. And they want it to be a place where, um, you know, small business folks come in and feel comfortable to even set up and meet people there like they would potentially at Starbucks, but, and they can also take care of some of their personal business, but perhaps with a personal business banker or even, um, talk about getting a, a loan. It, it's a great concept, um, but I think that ties into that financial institution's business strategy of how to get more of the market. You know, when you when you look at that, you know, from a bigger picture, when you go up all the way to, you know, the 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 large our largest financial institutions in in the U.S. like J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, they have two very dynamic approaches as, as well. You know, they're very similar in the markets they go into. And, you know, some of the technology, I mean, that they use for their ATMs and it's the same suppliers, but how they are going after their clients and what kind of clients are going after are, are very different. J.P. Morgan Chase is going for a more affluent customer to have uh, larger bank accounts where Bank of America is going after the masses. They're both getting to the same place of being the top one and two banks and, and doing, you know, extraordinarily well. Uh, but it's just, I just find it interesting, like Cap 1, too. Everybody's got a, a little different formula and how that's manifesting in the, the financial centers and the strategies is super interesting because, you know, you'll go into a JP Morgan Chase branch and the finishes are a little higher than I would say they are in a Bank of America right now. So they want to have an image of affluency, I think, is what they're trying to portray there, where Bank of America is going for something that fits everybody and, and is a uh, vibrant center, but also they don't want to seem too uh, 
over the top from a finish. They want to be every every person's bank. It's so interesting to talk about branding for bank branches because as a casual lifetime visitor of banks, so often the branches seem so interchangeable to me. <laughs> you know, I hate to say that. It goes back to where we started our conversation, right? All financial centers used to look the same, you know, 40 years ago. They were that the on the corner of Main and Main, big, big old building with the giant vault that Bonnie and Clyde would rob. Now it's gotten so much more competitive. Instead of it being one bank per city, you know, it's eight. You know, each one is is trying to, you know, go after as many customers as they can where it used to not be as competitive in, in those markets. I was looking at the um, uh, retail bank um, branch fit out guide that you guys um, re- recently published. And uh, I was reading about sort of the traditional model being of a hub and spoke model where you have more of a flagship bank in the big city and then the smaller suburban branches. It sounds like that's continuing or is that model going to change too? No, that's absolutely uh, a big part of the model now. Uh, Having the, 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 you know, the traditional uh, flagship branch, but the difference with the spoke, you know, um, you know, is that's usually, you know, a cafe or a virtual branch, you know, instead of it being just a smaller extension with all the same attributes as the flagship, just not quite as big and nice. Now, you know, that's where we're seeing all the deviation between everybody and and they're being a little more creative and, you know, trying to find, you know, the new secret sauce per se, uh, to, that, that's what's going to be the differentiator between uh, their product and everybody else's. I, I was just looking at, at the numbers and it's it seems like over the past few years, there's been a gradual decline uh, it's slight, but it's it's definitely there overall of number of bank branches in the U.S. How do we think about site selection for, or how do banks think about site selection in the future? Yeah, you know, they used to have to make a choice because you know there's a federal regulation around how many banks they can have open at any one time, depending on their capitalization. As the model is changing, that cap has become less relevant. Uh, and they're actually closing more financial centers than they're opening up new financial centers. And every every big financial institution has a what they think is the right recipe to get to down to a number that they think is the right number. And that changes probably and will every every quarter probably. If not, yeah, at a minimum it'll be every year. The closures, what that does is that opens up opportunity in new markets that they weren't formally not able to get in. And so the example I'll give is JP Morgan Chase is moving into markets now that they have never been in. It, Charlotte, North Carolina is a great example. The headquarters of Bank of America, they have never been in this market and they're about to make a, a, a big move and are opening up financial centers in this market, which is you know, a real shot across the bow for Bank of America. You know, like, hey, I, you know, they didn't have to compete head to head in their hometown with them until you know it'll it'll start here in 2019 as those financial centers open up. So that that's that's the growth strategy now is you know they're oversaturated in certain markets so they're closing they're doing consolidations and closures in those markets but that's allowing them to now open up more broadly across America. If a if a retailer is trying to judge the success of a particular store location, they'll look at the overall sales or the sales per square foot. How does a how does a bank judge? Is it like 
number of visitors that come in every day? How do they judge if a branch is successful? That one's an easy one, right? I mean, it comes down to, it, you know, it really is total, the, the dollars deposited, you know, at the bank. How many, really, bottom line, how many customers do they have? And so, you know, a successful bank could, you know, have a $100 million, you know, deposit base, you know, for, for all their clients. That would be a great business right there. But no one, none of those customers could come in that branch and they would still consider that to be a great, super successful business. And then you could have on the converse, you could have a financial center that, you know, has $10,000 total deposits, but people are in there all the time. They're not doing any business. They, they could just be coming in to get the free coffee, right? So, I mean, it, it, is, a, it is a zero-sum game you know, to, to determine if, if, these, if these centers are, are doing well or not. It's, it comes down to how much, how much are they making from deposits. That's it. Am I right in saying you've worked on projects all over the U.S.? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all over the U.S., Canada, some in Mexico as well. Where, in your experience, was the most difficult place to put up a bank branch? Yeah, there's a couple of places. Um, the most difficult market to do um, just, I think, construction in general is New Orleans, Louisiana. And it's just a, it's just a tough place for construction in general uh, because of, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of things there. It, it's, it's um, a difficult environment. Uh, you know, a lot of it's below sea level. Um, so you got to be very careful and you, you have to have really good uh, engineering uh, whenever you're doing work down there. But yeah, the other thing is that the labor pool is very difficult uh, to manage depending on what time of year it is. You know, a lot of the folks who work in the trades have other jobs, you know, or if Mardi Gras pops up, you know, you could lose weeks uh, because, you know, you're just not going to have people showing up, even just getting work permitted and, and inspections and all that. I mean, it just, it, the problems compound on each other. It's a, it's a very hard market to do really not just banking construction, but any, any kind of construction, quite frankly. Um, and then, you know, another market, you know, there, there's a couple of markets, um, Dade County, Florida and Fairfax, Virginia, because of the sheer volume of work, um, you know, it takes a long time and it's very difficult with um, the local uh, permitting and inspections. Uh, it's just, you know, they, they just don't have enough people and it to get stuff approved, uh, you know, it takes more time than almost anywhere else in the country uh, with those two markets. Um, I mean, I could probably name three more out there, but th those are the two that always come to top of my mind. One of the the toughest lessons um, that I that I had to learn um, early in my career it was one of the first um, sites that I was a project manager on. The site that we were building on was a was previously a dry cleaner, but I was not aware of that. Yeah, the due diligence probably wasn't there with with uh, at the time uh, for the the firm I was working for building this this site for uh, when selecting the site. And so when we got to um, doing some soil samples and, you know, as we were starting to, to excavate and, and do stuff, yeah, you know, we ran to, into a, a, a lot of problems uh, and ended up, you know, having to basically, you know, excavate this site. Um, it felt like we, we you know, we're, we're digging, you know, to the core of the earth, quite frankly, uh, and then come back in and, you know, take all of that out, uh, had to have a special uh, company. Um, Take the, the the bad dirt, you know, that was 
that had been um, contaminated and then bring in, you know, fresh dirt, you know, to, to actually do it. And, and, you know, that, that kind of process um, ended up taking years, not, not months, because, you know, th- then once you put the dirt in, it has to settle before you can start over again, right? And so uh, this project that, you know, I started early on in my career, about four years later, came back to where to a finally I could finally build this financial center after the dirt had been removed and then settled enough where we could actually uh, then commence construction on this financial center. So I always get around that like the first thing I ever ask a transaction partner uh, when they're when they're looking for a new site to build a, a financial center on is please tell me this was not a former dry cleaner. <laughs> Well, Jim, thank you so much um, for joining me today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I really uh, appreciate it. Jim Ernst is part of a group at my company, JLL, called Project and Development Services, and they basically manage construction projects. They have a new report, and it's worth checking out. If you want to know more about bank construction and the costs to construct or renovate a bank in U.S. or Canadian markets, the report is called the Retail Bank Branch Fit-Out Guide, and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes of this episode, or just go to bit.ly forward slash bank building. That's bit.ly forward slash bank building. Bank building is all one word. I was just in Denver, and while I was there, I met up with the co-owner of the Tattered Cover Bookstore, Len Vlahos. And uh, I had really one question for Len, which is, how does a bookstore remain relevant in this digital age? And Len had actually some fantastic answers to that question. You can see uh, what the store looks like and a video of our conversation. It's posted on LinkedIn. Go to bit.ly forward slash Denver Books. That's bit.ly slash Denver Books. Denver Books is one word. I always love meeting up with fellow retail real estate enthusiasts. One upcoming opportunity is the ICSC Research Connections Conference. So this is going to be in Miami, October 27 through 29. I'm going to be moderating a panel there. If you are someone who thinks about retail real estate, is a retail or retail real estate analyst, this is something you should go to. I'm going to give you a link to get to the conference website right now. It's bit.ly forward slash research connections. That's bit.ly slash research connections. Research connections is all one word. It is a great excuse to check out some cool retail in Miami. I know while I'm there, we're going to go to the Design District. We're going to go to Wynwood. If you've never been to Lincoln Road, you probably need to check that out. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff. I mean, it's Miami. Come on. My calendar is quickly filling up. There's a lot of other opportunities for us to meet up as well. I'm going to be at the Urban Land Institute Conference in D.C. September 18 through 20. I'll be at the National ICSC Canada Conference in Toronto. That's September 23rd and 24th. Tentatively, we're going to do some live podcasts from the show floor. More details on that as they come about. I'm going to be at Center Build in Phoenix, December 4th through the 6th, ICSC New York, December 10th through 12th, and the Open Air Conference in Nashville in February. 
If you're going to be at any of those conferences, let me know on Twitter. My handle is James D. Cook. Taylor Coyne has been working on this report called So You Want to Build a Food Hall. And it's all about food hall design, curation, and operation. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking about it. Plus, we're going to talk to the creator of the Santa Barbara Public Market. And we're going to visit Astor Hall in Chicago. Those are two very different food halls. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Where We Buy on the iPhone podcast app, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Or you can visit us on the web at wherewebuy.show. Do you have opinions about retail? We'd love to hear about them. Give us a call on the Where We Buy hotline and we'll use your voice in an upcoming show. The number is 602-633-4061. Be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. Our theme music is Run in the Night by The Good Lords under Creative Commons license. (laughs) 